I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Lindsay Powell. She's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, where she runs the Social Cognition and Learning SoCal Lab, studying how infants and young children think about the social world. Lindsay, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Lindsay, in addition to studying how children think and feel, you also study what's going on in their brain as they're engaging in this social cognition and learning. And on your website, which I'll link in the description, there are a bunch of cute and interesting photos of children wearing these caps with a whole bunch of wires that you use to measure brain activity. What is that like? I imagine it's super complicated to get the infant to like sit still and do what you need. Yeah, I mean, it's always complicated to get a baby to do what you want them to do, whether you're parenting or doing research of any kind. Um, but FNIRS is actually like one of the advantages of it is that it's actually quite a bit simpler than fMRI, which measures a similar signal, right? So both um, FNIRS, which stands for functional near infrared spectroscopy and fMRI are measuring um, blood flow in response to neural activity in the brain. And uh, the deal with fMRI is, you know, as I'm sure you know, you have to lay inside a big tube that makes a lot of noise and lay perfectly still. Um, and none of those things are baby's strong suits, especially if they're awake. Um, but uh, with FNIRS, um, the way that the blood flow is measured in the brain is using light emission and detection. So um, light is absorbed by your body, uh, but near infrared light goes through a lot of biological tissue. It gets absorbed by um, oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin. And so you can measure changes in light absorption between two points to measure changes in blood flow between those two points. Um, and so you can just put the light emitters and detectors in a cap that goes on the baby's head. And then if they move around a bit, you know, like you, can, you can get motion artifacts, but they can move around a bit and you can still get good signal in terms of blood flow in their brain. Um, it works a lot like a pulse oximeter that you might put in your finger on your finger. Um, and this is uniquely good for babies because in adults, the skull is too thick to fully measure the wavelength, right? That's right. You can do nears with adults and pe people do. Oftentimes they'll, they'll do it much in a much more ten intense way where they like glue the um, light emitters and detectors to the person's head sort of so that the co contact stays good. And, and actually it's not just the skull, it's hair too. So hair is really reflective. Uh -huh. right? So um, babies, especially bald, balder babies are good for nears research because their skulls are thin and their, their hair is um, less. If it's a particularly hairy baby, do you ever go out of your way to shave them for the study? <laughs> I have never asked a parent to shave a baby's head, nor have I ever shaved a baby's head myself. Um, we will we'll do various tricks like you can spend a little time sort of like like parting their hair in the right spot to try to get that octode in the right in the right place. I um, guess the research but, is lower stakes than brain surgery, but sometimes for surgeries they'll like shave the incision site. That's right. That's right. And if anyone hasn't seen it, Nancy Camster has a lovely video on her website of she shaves her head and then she draws all the functional brain regions on. <laughs> so that's cool. Take a page from Nancy's book. What what is it about measuring brain activity that above and beyond just studying how infants think and learn more generally, what, what does the brain piece add to the picture of your research? Yeah, well, so you could imagine studying the, studying the brain for lots of different reasons. Actually, the reason that FNIRS was created initially um, was because premature infants are um, susceptible to something like a stroke, uh, like older adults are, but um, they're hard to detect, right? Because they're not moving around. Like maybe you won't see the sort of hem hem hemi side paralysis kind of that you'd see as a symptom of a stroke in an adult. And so um, medical doctors created F a version of FNIRS to measure blood flow in the premature infant brain to, to try to detect those kinds of events. Um, and you can also imagine, you know, wanting to just 
study the development of brain function and brain organization for its own sake. Um, for me personally, I'm more interested in the cognitive questions. And so then you could ask, right, it's like, why do you care where the activity is happening in the brain so long as you can measure cognition and know that it's happening? And I think in infants, um, behavior is quite a bit more um, ambiguous. It's hard to like sort of sometimes it can be hard to differentiate behavior in a fine-grained way that tells you exactly what it's about. So looking time, even reaching, uh, other kinds of ways that we, um, even things like, you know, helping, like all kinds of things that babies do could be motivated by um, different sorts of processes. So you might look at something because you like it and find it like a pretty or attractive or appealing or like you want to engage with it, or you might be looking for the sake of information seeking. Um, similarly with reaching, you can reach at things you want, or you can reach at things you want to explore. Um, with, with helping, we don't know like what exactly are the motives that babies care about when they engage in like sort of um, early acts of helping. And so all of those kinds of behaviors, I sort of wonder if we can get a better purchase on understanding them or understanding when they're different. Like when is looking driven by social preferences or when is it driven by information seeking? If we can tie those ambiguous behaviors in infancy to sort of different neural systems in the developing brain. So you can tell more of a story depending on which brain activities are are activated. Like if it's a social brain region that's implicated in some sort of social looking, you can be confident that there's actually some social cognition going on as opposed to like the baby just likes her outfit. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, right. Is it, will liking someone's outfit look different than thinking they're a good social partner? I don't know. Like that, part of the problem is that reverse inference in neuroscience is hard mm -hmm. and um, not something we want to lean into too far. Um, I think at a bare minimum, though, you could you could back up the story that there are different motives to look, right? That, that sometimes looking is driven by social preference and sometimes it's driven by information seeking, um, where there are sort of broader patterns. Like so, what, so one study that we're doing in the lab right now is um, uh, in adults, there's two systems, two networks of regions that correspond or that respond to other people's um, suffering. One is a uh, like a pain network, you might call it. Um, so like somatosensory cortex and insula and dorsal, dorsal interior cingulate cortex. And then there's the sort of mentalizing regions that are somewhat aligned with the default no mode network. So like medial prefrontal cortex or TPJ. Um, and so one thing we're asking is if you show infants videos of people sort of struggling or suffering versus just succeeding at the same kinds of tasks or like not pinching their finger with a clip or not stubbing their toe, um, do the neural responses in either one of those networks sort of reflect understanding of other people's struggling? And then do either one of those networks predict sort of early helping and empathizing behaviors in toddlers? This is a study we're doing right now. Sort of that's like one way we might think about getting better purchase on what is going on with infant behavior from looking at their brain at the same time. That helping hindering paradigm sounds kind of similar to a, a study that Dion Benton was doing. Um, he was on the podcast recently, and he seemed a bit skeptical about to what extent infants are genuinely engaging in social cognition when it comes to um, thinking about, you know, like preferring people who are cooperative as opposed to something like another interpretation could be if you prefer the cooperative partner, but you're getting all sorts of social feedback while you're seeing cooperation that's sort of just training the infants to like this more indirectly. And there, there's the question, I think he said this is an ongoing question in his lab that they're going to look at of if you did the opposite, like if you gave the infant positive feedback for engaging with the non-cooperative partner, could you 
instill some sort of like reverse morality in them? Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and actually, I was, we were talking before I mentioned, I listened to the episode that you recorded with Dion. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so for this particular study, the infants are 18 to 24 months old. So it was substantially older than what he was talking about and sort of mm-hmm. more at the age where folks like Felix Warnikin have shown that, you know, children start to engage in these helping behaviors and they engage in them and appropri- they engage in them appropriately. So if a person has dropped something and is trying to pick it up, they'll help pick it up. If a person just throws something on the floor, then they won't pick it up. Right. So, so there's mm-hmm. like cues in that literature on helping that suggest that they understand um, what the goals are. Also, they can even understand what the intentions are when other people are tr- trying to help or not helping, whether or not the outcome is helpful or not. Right. So uh, in this age, like one-year-olds can do the, can distinguish between people who are um, trying to be helpful, but failing versus um, intentionally being unhelpful. So this is unwilling versus unable research from folks like Kristen Dunfield and other others, um, uh-huh. where a person's like holding out a, a clip and like pulling it back every time the baby tries to reach for it versus putting it in front of them. But because the table is tilted, it keeps rolling away from them. So I think by the age we're doing this near stuff, like they, they seem to fully get the idea of goals and intentions. Um, all the stuff earlier in infancy is a little bit more fraught. And that's something we also do look at in, in my my lab to some extent, not exactly the same questions that Dion's looking at, but sort of um, if infants are able to understand others' goals and intentions, um, both the actor's own and then the helper and hinderer's intentions towards the person who needs help or who's being hindered, um, how could we think about the calculation they're making? And, and so um, we've looked a little bit at the idea that like there's a naive utility calculus that babies use to understand people's actions toward objects, and maybe they're using the same kind of naive utility calculus to think about their actions toward other people, you know, um, to the extent that you'll only engage in a costly action that benefits someone else if you care about their welfare or you care about their rewards, because that's what makes the utility calculus work to make that action the one that you would pick, to care about what the other person wants or needs in order to be motivated to act to help them. Are people in a special category in infants' minds, or is it something more like a broader utility calculus of agents, with certain goals or motivations and the agent could be like a robot and the robot could also be a helper or hinderer and they would think the same about it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm I'm personally swayed or convinced by the work on cues to agency detection and the idea that, um, that infants uh, and maybe also older children use a broader set of cues and not just the human form to identify um, agents. Uh, those include having a face, which is a bit of like a human form type thing, although it applies to other some other living species, right? Um, and then also contingent behavior, so behavior that's sort of contingent to a social partner or contingent to the environment. If you're jumping just as high as you have to to get over a wall, or if, you know, um, whenever someone talks to you, you you beat back. That's a cue to animacy potentially. And then also self-propelled motion. Um, I worked a little bit on these kinds of things when I was an undergrad, as a research assistant, actually. So like the first study I worked on um, as an undergrad in a baby lab, I was throwing beanbags from behind a curtain. This was work with uh, Rebecca Sachs and Susan Carries, where they're trying to show that um, if a baby knows that a beanbag is inanimate and they see it emerge in motion from a, non, un, from a hidden location, will they infer the presence of, an, of some sort of agent back there? And they did versions of the experiment that had hands as the agents, that had inanimate toys that couldn't be the agents, but were coming from the same side. The baby sort of didn't expect and then also I think they created this little guy who could jump around. Um, and if babies had experienced the guy as like a puppet that didn't move um, versus 
as a like thing that did move on its own, they that sort of affected whether or not they inferred an additional agent in the hidden location. I think I got those right. Those are studies I did a very long time ago now. Um, but yeah, I had to get really good at throwing the beanbag right to the right yeah. spot on the stage because back then we didn't use computer animated things. But yeah, no, there's this whole theory of puppet things, right? Where like puppet debate where I don't know if I don't know if you're familiar with this, but like in the developmental field, there's this question of can we um, productively use shapes or puppets instead of people where we can really control the stimuli well and make sure everything's very matched, but maybe we're moving away from the most ecologically valid stimuli that babies would learn about. Yeah, I talked about this with Dave Sobel. I'm wondering okay. for the beanbag throwing, if okay, let's say you're throwing beanbags and this is your control condition. And in another condition, the beanbags have googly eyes on them. And every time you throw it, a speaker plays like an ow and, and the infant is thinking that maybe the beanbag is this animate object that's being hurt. Do you think that they would, and they, they could see the thrower. Do you think that they would be able to judge whether the thrower is moral or at least morally neutral and throwing something that can't experience pain versus thinking that the thing is, the beanbag is experiencing pain? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, um, yeah, I don't know what they would think about that situation. They do seem to be able to make some distinction between accidents and intentions, but I wonder if they'd have a hard time in that particular example figuring out whether the like like a poor landing for the beanbag was part of the thrower's intention versus an accidental outcome. And like maybe they were maybe the you know why does the why does the animate beanbag keep popping back in the hand if it doesn't want to get thrown? I guess would be a then, yeah. I guess you could keep yeah. adding manipulations to this. So one would be like the beanbag is hurt and the thrower comes to check on it and make sure it's okay. And in another condition, the thrower is laughing. It's like, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. And actually we're finding that infants have a hard time reasoning about negative um, uh, emotional responses to negative outcomes. So I don't like it. So some recent work that we posted as a preprint online is looking at um, infants expectations of vicarious emotions. So like empathy and counter empathy. Right. Um, and there's some preceding work by Amy Scarry and Liz Belke and other people have looked also at sort of early understanding of emotions. Um, and what Amy and, and uh, what Scarry and Spelke found is that, you know, infants have expectations for a jumper's own emotional responses to their success or failure, but only really clearly in the positive case. So if they, if they are trying to jump over a wall and they succeed in getting to the other side and they respond happily versus sadly, babies are surprised by the sad response. It's like, well, look, you were trying to get over the wall. You've done this repeatedly. Clearly that's your goal. Why would you be mm -hmm. sad? Why would you sort of have a negative appraisal for having gotten over the wall? But if they fail and bounce back, um, infants had, don't seem to have a clear expectation about sadness versus happiness. And there's lots of like potential hypotheses about why this might be the case. Um, in our vicarious emotional expectation uh, studies, we found exactly the same failure to reason about emotional responses to negative outcomes. Um, so I don't know. So with, so with the beanbag, they might similarly, <laughs> like, yeah, um, not really know how to think about uh, goals and intentions with respect to a, a negative emotional response in, in part because it seems like they have a hard time figuring out that those are the right responses to failure or, or pain to begin with. Um, yeah, really, so that's one gloss on the, on the findings. And with really young infants, like uh, in Dion's studies, I know that you measure surprise by using eye tracking and seeing that if they're surprised by something, infants will tend to look longer at it th than they would the, the non-surprising thing. But if you're working with older two-year-olds if they're talking, do you also take that as data? Like you ask them and, and try and code their explanations of things? 
Yeah, you know, I don't really do a lot of uh, violation of expectation looking time studies with children who are that age for precisely that reason, right? So by the time they get better at finding other ways to seek information, I find their gaze is maybe less reliable as a good sign of surprise. Like if they can do a lot of social referencing, turning around to their parents and being like, what's going on? Like that kind of social referencing disrupts their gaze to what's happening in the study, but it's not because they're not interested in it, right? So most of the looking time studies that we do are up to say like 15 to 16 months. And then we kind of cut it off because um, there start to be other ways that you could look at information seeking or other kind you could start to ask kids questions or see what kinds of helping behaviors they engage in. So I think mm-hmm. looking time is a great tool for studying infants. And maybe you can see like things like pupil size and I know there's lots of things that folks are looking at in terms of gaze behavior or patterns of eye tracking that could indicate exploration. But I don't do a lot of just sort of pure, how long are you looking past the age of 15 or 16 months? Because I find that it starts to be sort of mm-hmm. the, the behavior of the toddler. They also try to get off their parents' lap and just get, you know, babies who get bored and can't go anywhere will just look away. But babies who get bored and can move, like try to do that. They try to try to make a, make a run for it. So. so if it's an 18 month old who, how, how talkative would they be? What would, what would you do to evaluate their motives or attention uh, instead of eye tracking? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, actually, so so I have two kids and, and I, before I was a parent, I didn't realize how much toddlers could talk because in the lab, they're actually often quite shy. They often don't say much at all. And so I sort of thought like, oh yeah, I guess 14 month olds, like the literature says they can say a few words, but when they're here in the lab, they're never saying anything. And then I had kids and I realized that 14 month olds at home are just like nonstop chatterboxes. Um, and so some kids talk a lot in the lab, but lots of them don't because they're sort of shy about being in a new um, place. Uh, but you can do a lot of um, the sort of more spontaneous behavior tasks. So especially if you get them uncomfortable, um, things like the helping tasks that you're talking about. So uh, in this near study, I'll do something like um, I'll, I'll spill some blocks or my hands will be full and I'll be trying to put the blocks in a box that is like the lids on top of it, but a jar so the kid can move the lid off of it for me. Um, people do a lot of uh sort of like, I, I think of like Hyo Grand's research for this age range, right? Where there's like a broken toy. Do they try to grab another toy um, that might be one that works instead? Or do they hand the broken one to their parent? And which one they do depends on sort of what they think is the likely cause of the one that they're holding not working. If they think it's probably their own fault because some people seem to be good at the toys and some seem to be bad, they'll hand it to their parent. Whereas if they think like toys are just inconsistent and in whether or not they work, then they'll try to get the other toy. So I think you can you can create sort of clever, like actual behavioral tasks. Not, not that information seeking is not behavior. I'd say I've sometimes heard like sort of the like dismissal of imitation as, or sorry, uh, of looking time as like, um, uh, I'm, I'm more interested in behavior than just, you know, I, I gaze measures. But information seeking is a really important behavior. Um, it just gets sort of more multifaceted as children get older. And so harder to measure, I think, with one particular uh, metric. Do you know of any research on when guilt starts to emerge in children? For example, if you hand them a toy that's broken or like easily breakable and, and they think it's their fault, but it was really designed to be broken that way. Oh, that's a great idea. Make it so that um, they think these things are really robust, and but actually like you hand them something super fragile. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's a great question. So we've been looking at social emotions in the sense of empathy and counter empathy, but not really these like guilt and shame and pride kinds of things that are more about other people's impression of you. I think there's really cool emerging research on um, 
how uh, people think about others impression of themselves, like folks, stuff from folks like Mika Asaba, uh, who actually has versions of this with adolescents as well. So she's she's spanning our two different uh, developmental um, ages of interest. Um, but I don't know, I don't know if I study on the emergence of guilt, like like how how old do infants have to be before they have all the capacities available to feel Maybe guilty. to get there or to theorize about it, we could we could formalize how emotions develop. Tell me if if I get this wrong, but my sense is that there are sort of the most primary emotions. So it'd be happy, angry, sad, things that have to do with basic physical needs and whether you're getting them or not. And then as you mentioned, there's like these sort of second order emotions that have to do with other people that maybe start to emerge later, like empathy. And then what we're talking about here, like guilt or shame seem to not only be empathy directed at other, but it's sort of like theory of mind to the other and then redirected back at oneself. So it's it's sort of like a second order empathy of like, you could either feel pride if through your empathy for someone else, you know that they feel good about you or feel shame if they feel bad about you, again, through that empathy or mentalizing. And it gets more and more complex because, and then I guess with adults, you could you could imagine many layers of that. So like he knows what she knows that they know and so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know that's a really interesting characterization and it doesn't sound wrong to me. I will say I'm not an expert in emotions. I, I didn't work on emotion at all until um, a graduate student, Alexis Smith-Flores, um, came to UCSD and started working with me. And, and um, she's just had all this really sort of rich understanding of how infants and children use emotion as information about the world. And I was thinking about social relationships and we put it together. Um, and But as I sort of learn more about the area, um, I get two impressions. One is that um, it's really hard to define specific emotions. Um, and uh, the other is that emotional development in all three of the categories of emotions that you talked about, so sort of like your own emotions about your own needs, emotions about other people's um, welfare, and then emotions about other people's perception of you, that probably all three of those are continuing to develop, that there's a big role for um, language, like emotion words, right? So this is like work by Eric Nook and folks like that. Um, sort of showing that as children get a finer grain vocabulary for talking about emotion, they might get sort of a finer grain set of, of um, concepts, like maybe they can tell when they're frustrated versus when they're angry, even if those mm -hmm. are both sort of internal self-oriented emotions. With with respect to the other things, I, um, like emotions about other people and emotions about others' perceptions of you, my guess would be that um, they're not that slow, right? So, so to, to give a little bit more in-depth info about this work that Alexis has been doing, um, what we find is that if you show infants that two individuals are friends, and these are 10-month-old infants, so these are pre-verbal uh, pre infants under their under the first, um, before their first birthday, um, if you show them that two individuals are friends, um, and then you have one of them trying to do the thing that Scary and Zbelki did before, like jump over a wall, and the other one's watching, um, then if the, if the first one makes it over the wall, they expect the observer to be happy and they look longer if the observer responds sadly. If instead those two have like butted heads, literally like done the sort of, there's like infant studies on dominance. Um, so if the two have sort of bumped into each other, it doesn't, the dominance contest doesn't resolve here. So not neither one is in charge, but they've just like had the sort of conflict. And then later mm -hmm. on, one of them is jumping and the other one is watching. Infants no longer expect the observer to be um, happy when, when the jumper succeeds. <laughs> they look equally if the jumper is happy and sad. They're not expecting a, sa a sad response. Um, so not expecting shadow and Frida, but the, um, or I guess that would be Lakshmurts, right? But, um, but at the same time, 
um, they're not expecting the same kind of empathic response. And, and so our, our thought is, as soon as they can think about relationships as being this sort of system of caring about someone else's welfare, someone else's goals or rewards, like the emotions that they would think about that person having themselves toward their own um, rewards get transferred to this other person who cares about the, that person's rewards. Mm-hmm. Um, so caring about someone else's goals might lead to helping, but it would also lead to positive appraisals of good things for them and negative appraisals of bad things for them as soon as you understand both relationships and and basic appraisal processes of emotion um, so that there might not be that protracted a development of understanding some of these kinds of things. So in terms of other people's perception of you, if you know someone saw you do something competent, right? Like, I mean, so 11 month old, 12 month old infants will clap for themselves. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but like, um, if they do something good, like, um, like pick up something they dropped or like eat a, a food you're trying to get them to eat that I've, I've like seen my nieces and stuff clap for themselves. And so there might be some understanding of, or there might be some experience of pride or something like that, even that. Early. Is that so a social learning because they've seen for their 11 months of life that people clap when good things happen or do you, for did, sure. do they yeah, yeah. No, clapping is not innately a positive, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, celebratory so it, behavior. It, it sounds like there's a default assumption of positive motives towards strangers, but then if they gather evidence that there's some competition or clashing, then that positivity goes away? Potentially, yeah. So there was there was a non-affiliated condition in that paper um, where, in the preprint of Alexis's that we were just talking about, where um, there were two individuals who were like clearly friends who'd done some like stuff to like synchronous behavior together and were, were nearby one another. And then there was this like lone guy in the background who was like, kind of doing the same things, but not coordinated with them. Um, and so we were attempting there to sort of make all of the characters equally familiar, but have the two clearly be friends and the one be sort of like a non-friend. And in that case, when the, when one of the friends was watching the non-friend jump, they still expected the observer to respond um, happily instead of sadly to that to that jumper's success. Maybe we just did a bad job um, conveying social relationships to infants. It's a hard thing to figure out how to do when you can't just be like, hey, these guys are friends and this guy's a stranger, right? If you can't use those words, it can be um, tricky, but, or, but it could be this default assumption of positivity. And there is, there, there's other evidence, like cool things like um, uh, if infants are seated down a table from a, from a stranger, this is Ulf Luskowski's research, um, and there's an object that they want, the baby wants, but it's like too far for them to reach. Um, if there's no person there, they won't reach for it because they understand their arm is too short and they can't get it. But if there's a person down at the end of the table that they don't know, they'll reach for the object. Um, maybe under the assumption that if they do, the other person will figure out what they want and hand it to them. And those are like eight month old infants or something like that. So so yeah, things like that, other, other similar things lead me to think that infants have pretty generous um, interpretations of other people's behavior or expectations for other people's behavior. Although I think it's still sort of an open research question exactly how positive I think everybody is um, socially. I'm thinking of cognitive development as analogous to leveling up in a video game. And there's two types of things you could have. One would be something like you have a baseline set of skills. So like your motor control, for example, that's something you come out of the womb with, right? But it gets better over time. So you're going to level up there. But then there's another type where perhaps at a certain new level, you unlock a whole new skill. And then that comes with a whole new skill tree that can interact with other different things. So you mentioned Eric Nook's example of how language can influence the way that we perceive our emotions. You might also be familiar with Nadia Chernyak's work on children's conceptions of fairness and numeracy development. And she, we did a podcast and she's found that as children learn numeracy, even though they have this sort of early sense of fairness of like more versus less, 
as, as soon as they can start quantifying things, their, their, their moral sense of fairness becomes a lot more precise. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's um, totally plausible that sort of combining these skills that we gain culturally with sort of baseline social or motor skills ends up creating um, whole new opportunities for suites of behavior. Um, one thing I should note just to just like, just as like background is whenever I talk about something occurring in an eight or a 10 or a 12 month old infant, it's definitely not, um, I don't, I don't take any of that as evidence that that's an innate part of some sort of social cognitive toolkit that humans have. Um, I think that the question of innateness is a hard one to study with the tools that we currently have. I'm just actually, I'm interested in the skills that the social skills that infants have around the end of the first year of life for lots of reasons. Um, but one of them actually has to do with this. I don't know, maybe, maybe an idea that's kind of related to this, like, leveling up or unlocking a new um, realm of understanding, which is, so, so I've done some work on imitation. Um, actually, and I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly where your question was going. So I'm just gonna take it in the direction that I, that occurred to me. Yeah, that's please okay. do. Uh, yeah, so actually I got interested in, in studying social interactions um, through studying imitation, through a paper actually by Derek Lyons and Frank Kyle, and they had one other co-author I have forgotten now. Um, but uh, it was on, it was on this, this idea of over imitation, right? Where children see someone engage in some intentional sequence of actions on an object and then get some reward at the end of it. And then some of the actions that the person did on the object were necessary to get the reward and some were not, and children copy all of them. And, uh, Lyons and Kyle, uh, and their co-author, <laughs> maybe it was George Newman, I can't remember, um, uh, interpreted this as evidence that children thought that all the actions were causally necessary because they tried to do some of the things to get them to not do it, right? Like they tried to give them time pressure or, or have them be unobserved or these various things and the kids kept copying more things than they needed to. And so they sort of had this causal interpretation. Although in their own paper, they also showed that kids were quite adept at saying which actions were causally necessary and which ones weren't, which I thought kind of undermined the story. But in any case, I was kind of interested you know, there's also this this long train of research going um, back decades that sort of humans are um, imitative in two ways. We're sort of normatively imitative and informationally imitative, right? So like we Im imitate people because we think we're supposed to socially or that it, that it would be positively received. And we also imitate people because it's a good way to learn about the world in lots of instances. Um, and so uh, one, I, one line of work that I did as a grad student was on, as a postdoc, I guess, too, um, was on uh, how infants um, evaluate imitative behavior. And it seemed to me like there might be some sort of um, ontogenetic story where either imitation starts out being something that's a learning mechanism. And then because group members are more likely to copy each other, you build up sort of a suite of similar behaviors. And then it becomes this sort of socially important thing to act like other people uh, because it marks what group you're in, or alternatively, Maybe it starts out that imitation is this sort of socially positive thing. Um, and then eventually, like you realize through sort of imitating things that turn out to be more useful than you realized or expected them to be, that you can use imitation as a way, as a sort of a mechanism for learning causally opaque behaviors or, or sort of culturally um, useful, like not just culturally marking, but cu culturally useful behaviors. Um, and so one way to ask that question is to go, you know, not, not necessarily that. Um, either one is innate, but if you go back early enough in development, you might find a point where you see what, signs of one or the other, but not both. 
And so in four and five month old infants, I did some, some work with uh, Liz Spelke, who's my PhD advisor, you know, showing infants situations where there's one central character and then two um, interaction partners for that central character. And in one version of the study, the central character is um, the responder. So one of the side characters initiates an interaction and the central character imitates them. And then the other one initiates an interaction and the central character doesn't imitate. So now the two side characters are like a model, like an imitated model and a non-imitated model, like an imitated target and not imitated target, right? And then um, you give infants a preference test between those two and they actually don't care. They don't look longer at the imitated target than the non-imitated target, which is against sort of what a story of any prestige-based learning or like sort of following other people's attention um, to the person who's got the right information would tell you. Um, and then the other version of the study, the center character is the model and the two side characters are the imitator and the non-imitator. So the center character, you know, initiates an interaction with one and the, the one imitates him. And then the center character initiates an interaction with the other and the other one doesn't imitate. But now when you give infants a preference test, they look longer at the imitator than at the non-imitator. Non um, and in other studies, they reach more for imitators and non-imitators. And um, Ashley Thomas now has some work showing that, you know, babies will, if their parents are imitating one person and not the other, they'll infer that the, the parents have a relationship with the imitated target. And so, so um, the gloss on that is that maybe initially infants are thinking about imitation as this important social behavior, maybe again, related to this idea of like relationships or, or pro-sociality being about adopting others' goals and others' sort of uh, rewards in the world. So if you're an imitator, it's a sign you line up with someone else and you adopt you know, their, their goals. Um, and so babies are interested in those people, the people who are acting sort of pro-socially um, and initially maybe think about imitation that way as a way to line up, line up with your social partners in a pro-social way, instead of thinking it as like, uh, we should all copy the same people who have got, likely got the information about the world. And so, so sorry, Beth, this is a long circle back to your question about leveling up. I, obviously, eventually it becomes both, right? So I'm actually mm -hmm. quite interested in um, sort of how once, so infants don't do very much imitating themselves early on in life, if any, if any such controversial topic, but um, they don't really start imitating much and they especially don't do any over imitation until the second year of life and, and things like over imitation kind of become more and more robust with age. Um, and so I'm interested in how the sort of early social interpretation of and propensity to line up with people who you have relationships with might eventually um, get ratcheted into this like, oh wait, like at least in some domains, there's actually quite a lot of information to be to be gained that I didn't know was there, that I couldn't tell was there by copying what other people are doing, right? Like if I press this button on the TV remote, the TV's gonna turn on. Or, you know, if I um, swipe the touch screen in this way, something's gonna happen. I didn't understand that swiping was a causal mechanism, but now maybe I get that when it comes to interacting with artifacts, there's gonna be lots of causal mechanisms that I could just copy from people. And maybe they get there through sort of being um, sort of pulled into copying other people through for, for social motivations first. I remember learning about these over imitation studies in the context of a broad cognitive science class that was talking about human cognitive development as well as cognitive developments in other species. And they were doing similar tasks. So like, let's say you have a complicated lockbox and it has a series of steps, but some of the steps are unnecessary while you're watching the, the person unlock it. And in the animal research, they were using it as a marker of intelligence. And there was sort of this curve where if you're not smart enough, you just can't open it, period. And then if you're a little bit smart, you can follow all the steps step by step. And then there were some species of birds and maybe primates that would know to skip the redundant steps so that the story told there was because they're so smart, they figure out what to skip. 
And then humans were this mm -hmm. weird anomaly where it's like, we're even smarter than all the other animals, <laughs> but we still over imitate. And I think this wasn't just the ch children. I think that adults were over imitating to some degree. And I yeah. think what, what you were just saying about that imitation, not just being functionally useful in the task sense, but in the social bonding sense, or uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people have this reaction to the Lions piece. And there are lots of articles right after it came out about sort of the dual functions of, of imitation and childhood. Harriet Over did a lot of work on this kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so clearly it has both of these purposes. I, I, just, I think it's an interesting sort of developmental trajectory story to figure out how both of the pieces come to happen, how if, if and how much they're related to one another, all those kinds of things. So maybe does someday I'll get back around to saying that. Does, does that... Huh? Does that come full circle with the neuroscience? Like, given that these seem to be established findings, um, do we know what if the same thing is going on in infant brains when adults are engaging in the same type of social cognition? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, people have tried to study the neural basis of imitation, and um, there is probably work on adults where they're copying for normative reasons versus information gaining reasons, reasons. And I don't actually know any of it <laughs> it's off the top of my head. I probably did at some point in time. Um, it's probably all tied up, uh, like mixed up with the mirror in our own literature too, which was, is tricky. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also hard because both of these motives can apply across a bunch of different kinds of imitation, right? So you can adopt a, an opinion about a person or a um, kind of music or whatever, that's um, that's either normatively um, conforming or in informationally conforming, right? Like you can say like, oh yeah, like I bet this person knows a lot about the right jacket to wear in the winter cold, so I should like copy their jacket choice or like, oh man, like that person's super cool, so I should copy their jacket choice, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so the tricky thing, right, is that like both of those motives are gonna apply across a bunch of different kinds of choices or behaviors, like the same, like alternatively, you could be talking about interaction with actual objects where you're moving your limbs as opposed to just, you know, um, forming a preference for for um, an item. And so I don't know if, if there's like, if people have reliably pinpointed neural mechanisms that separate the two kinds of social learning across all these different mm -hmm. like ways in which you could be copying someone else, I'm not sure. This is nested within- It's not something I haven't applied years to this at all nested within a larger question for me of like how to interpret brain development so in my in my own research area adolescent brain development there's sort of the well the first thing to ask is cognitively are adolescents doing the same thing as adults right and then uh, it's it's always fun and exciting when we find some significant difference because that's signaling some sort of developmental trajectory that is still ongoing in the teen years. But then even if you mm -hmm. find no behavioral or cognitive differences, there's a next interesting question you can ask, which is, okay, functionally, they're the same, they're achieving the same performance, but what does the brain data tell us? Because it could be the case that you're achieving the same performance, but if you have a young brain, it's much more effortful and that could show up in the fMRI scans. And even then, when you see these brain differences between, um, children and adults, it's it's sort of difficult to interpret because often you might think more brain activity is better. So like maybe more brain activity when you reach adulthood. But then when you have pruning, it could be the opposite. Like it could be the, the, the fact that more brain activity means more effort. So the child is actually struggling. And then the adults, you just don't really see much brain activity at all because it's it's so fluent. 
Right. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I see, I see a real parallel here um, to what I was saying about, you know, with infants, we have these sort of ambiguous behavioral measures where we can't really always tell what they mean. You're saying something similar where like the same level of performance in two different groups can, can, it can look identical, like from just the behavioral data perspective, but it can mean something different. So just like looking, the duration of looking time might mean something different in two cases. Is mm-hmm. for some level of performance in children versus adults might mean something different. And so the neural data is just a, a different source of information to help us figure out how to interpret um, the behavioral performance. Um, and I guess, yeah, so, I mean, I guess I like what it seems like one thing you could try to do in that case is get a sense of like, if you make the task harder or easier for each group, how do you see neural activity changing? Um, and then try to get a sense of like, is there a good way to interpret like levels of activation um, right. Like if you see, um, uh, in adults, no matter how hard or easy you make this task, you get roughly the same amount of brain activation. Cause they've got sort of some fluent set of processes that are just able to handle all the different problems. Whereas with children, you see a big ramp up in activity. Like maybe that would help you better feel like you've got a better handle on what more activation means in that case in kids, or maybe you see less activation, the harder the task gets, cause they can't figure out what it is they're looking at anymore. It's not activating whatever the kind of system is depending on what the task is like. So you could sort of take a task specific approach. to what does more activation mean here by trying to vary levels of difficulty, but it's a hard problem, right? And so, mm-hmm. and so neural data is useful sometimes and also equally ambiguous to behavioral data other times. I was at a recent talk by Celeste Kidd and she was talking about something I think is related to this old idea of the zone of proximal development of like kids like to be challenged and pushed, but if you're pushed too hard, then you might just give up. So the, the, the right level of challenge is like just beyond your current skill set where you can actually reach the like that that new level of skill if you put in enough effort. Uh, and and mm-hmm. she was showing that. I think this was in pretty young children, right? Maybe even infants. I don't remember the age range, but it was it was this sort of U-shaped or inverse U-shaped curve of engagement. And the idea is that if you're showing a child a video of something that's just repetitive and boring, then very quickly they look away. And then if it's very chaotic, they also look away because they're just like, I can't make sense of this. But then there's some optimal zone of complexity that that is actually engaging. Yeah. Yeah. I think, right. So this is, um, right. So this is one of the theories that underpins the idea of looking time as information seeking or like the, the violation of expectation paradigm. Um, and Celeste has beautiful work on, on, you know, with both visual and auditory stimuli showing the sort of U-shaped looking time as you change the, um, complexity of the stimulus. Uh, there's also this, the many babies five. So, so there's lots of many babies projects where people like, just like in the many labs case, people are trying to get lots of developmental scientists together. And many babies five is on this question of um, when will you, is it, I guess it's a related question. When will you see looking to familiar things versus novel things? The idea being that, um, that uh, stimuli that are difficult to process are kind of like uh, intermediately complex or maybe even overly complex patterns. Um, like temporal patterns where you need sort of more time or more um, attention to sort of fully encode or process the object, whereas simpler objects you'll be able to like are more like the repetitive patterns where you look at it, you figure out what it is, and then you want to look at the new thing, right? Um, and so the Many Babies 5 project is varying stimulus complexity and also the age of the infant to kind of get a sense of whether we can think about attention to um, familiar versus novel things 
uh, in infancy as sort of mapping onto this kind of information theoretic curve of where you're going to get the most out of your looking, not where it's too simple, not where it's too complex, but in this sort of Goldilocks spot in the middle. Um, and yeah, and so I've, right. So the, here I have a little bit of Nier's work um, as a postdoc. So, uh, so as, a, as a postdoc, I did a project that um, I have submitted a couple places and just got desk rejected and hopefully I'll have a new version of the manuscript uh, ready to go soon. But the idea was something like, can we uh, find neural activation that relates to looking at people who are good social partners versus people who are uh, informative? Um, and so we had this sort of two by two matrix of um, people speaking in a friendly infant directed voice toward babies while smiling um, or speaking in this sort of adult directed neutral um, frame uh, while making a neutral expression. So less, less good social partner. And then crossed with that social dimension was sort of what's the pattern of speech that they're producing? Is there a statistical pattern in their speech? Is it just a single repeated syllable? Is it a random nonsense stream that has absolutely no transitional probabilities at all, or like they have a flat, flat space where they can't learn anything? Um, and, and yeah, so we got some evidence that lateral prefrontal cortex is helping them to encode these kinds of patterns. Um, and we're, and so one of one grad student in my lab now is Lauren Smith is following up on the same kind of thing with these sort of static image cases where you have a baby looking at an object and then you get that object next to a new one. And you ask something like, does lateral prefrontal activation while looking at the object initially predict the degree of novelty preference? So sort of across these different kinds of stimuli, might you see the same brain processes accounting for encoding information and then once you've encoded it well enough based on more active brain and more brain activation, whatever that means, um, then you'll look more at the novel thing. Um, and she's mixing social cues into it where like sometimes there's another person there um, joint attending to the object with you and sometimes there is not. Um, I'm looking at how that affects uh, encoding, like strength of encoding, but also which brain regions are involved in the encoding process. So that's a thing that we're doing right now. <laughs> and so we'll see how it works out. We've been so casually talking about when you get to bring children into the lab and then discover some interesting finding. It, I'm guessing it's way more complicated than you make it sound. It's like a years long process, right? Can we, can we talk about what that's actually like in practice? Uh, sure. Yeah. So the the postdoc work I was talking about was actually really difficult because, um, well, uh, we didn't have a baby database, and so we had to find and find babies. <laughs> And actually some folks in the in the Saks Lab at MIT did a really wonderful job coming up with social media strategies that helped us recruit parents better. Um, and that's been something that I've used a lot in my own lab to try to build a database of families here in San Diego. Um, and um, so that was hard. <laughs> and then also um, Nears caps are, uh, yeah, Nears is, is like not that new anymore, but I still feel like there's not, um, and, and there's lots of different companies that make them and all the different companies sort of have strengths and weaknesses. And so the, the company that I got a cap, the caps from at MIT was um, like technologically, they were great. They worked really well, um, but there wasn't a lot of um, uh, pre-made like design in terms of putting the thing on the baby's head. So we had to come up with our own you know, way of designing and constructing arrays and putting them on the head. There were lots of pilot babies in those studies. Uh -huh. um, I guess MIT is the best that, place to be for that though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, in the long run, it was good because I think the way that we designed the caps is a little different than the standard. We put channels a little closer together, not like you have to keep the light emitter and detector a little far apart from each other in FNIRS so that you get amount of depth penetration that actually goes down into the baby's brain instead of just measuring blood flow in their scalp. But you can stack those channels close to each other. And so we did a little like slightly higher density than some other caps. And I think that was a big advantage. Um, but yeah, you know, 
getting the cap on the baby isn't, isn't so bad, especially in Boston where they like to wear winter hats here in San Diego, we have a little bit more resistance to putting something on their heads. Um, but actually measuring the brain activity and measuring behavior at the same time and, and getting good behavioral data and also good years infant data from, from the infants is, is a challenge. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's funny. I, I, you know, it's not that much harder to get families in to do a near study than to do a looking time study. Um, but post pandemic, there's been actually the, the gap between doing behavioral research and doing near research has widened a lot because now it turns out that you can do, you can get really good behavioral data online over, um, over zoom with looking time studies, but you can't get any neuroimaging data online over zoom. Um, and so now we do all of our like purely behavioral studies um, are online. I think in the future, we might do some behavioral stuff that's in person, like it involves more like those reaching and active tasks and that kind of thing. But currently, like there's just a bifurcation in my lab where folks who are doing looking time studies collect their data on Zoom and folks who are doing nearest studies bring babies into the lab. And so it feels a lot more effortful to do the nearest studies now, but it's just as hard as it used to be to, to get babies to come into the lab. So you call, you know, you call them on the phone or you, or you email parents. Actually, a lot now we text parents a lot more than we used to like. Yeah, we used to we used to get credit card lists and call people on the phone when I was an undergrad. Now we like post Instagram ads and text parents. <laughs> so like, you know, all that stuff changes, but it's all the same. It sounds like in the last 10 to 15 years, three major breakthroughs in the science of early development were the FNIRS caps that you mentioned, being able to recruit on social media and being able to do these online looking time studies. Are there any other relatively recent breakthroughs that we missed and how is this changing the direction that the field is going more generally? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, it'll be really interesting to see where it goes. So um, I think there's two things people are trying to do now that relate to machine learning approaches. Um, one is automatic gaze coding, right? So right now, um, people in the lab, lots, lots of times undergrads in the lab are the ones who are coding uh, infant looking. Um, sometimes there's eye, eye trackers, uh, but, and they're, they're you know, um, web-based eye trackers are making some, web camera-based eye tracking is making some progress, but it used to be the babies had to be in the lab sitting in front of something like a Toby or an iLink that's using near-infrared signals to track their pupils. I actually, so so we don't do this with our near studies in the lab in part because the the um, light that you use to do the, the eye tracking and the light that goes into the baby's heads in the um, near studies are similar, right? So actually eye tracking and nears can kind of interact badly with one another. Um, not that it's impossible, but it's just a little extra work. And there's already, we're trying to get behavioral measures and brain imaging measures. So we don't try to get eye tracking data on top of that. Um, but some people are trying to, um, create machine learning based eye tracking from just regular video camera videos. Um, and whether that can just tell you whether the baby's looking on or off or looking at like, you know, the left or the right side of the screen or actually giving you a trace like a, like a Toby or an iLink would. It's like different systems do different things. Um, but the other thing is, I don't know if you've heard of um, deep lab cut. It's like an animal research thing. It's a pose estimation. So like where, where is the, where are all the limbs and joints of the, um, of the animal and where are they moving? And it's been used to study mice a lot and people are trying to use it to study babies. So like, can you videotape the baby and like then sort of build an image of where they are and, and how they're moving around. Um, and then actually, I guess there's a third machine learning approach, which is comes from folks like, like Bria Long, who are taking head cam data sets and trying to do like, you get so much data from, from head cam corpora. And can you use machine learning to pick out what's actually in the baby's environment over those um, 
thousands of hours of footage without having people go through and code it all. So I think replacing human coders with machine coders is another thing. Although I, I think in my own lab, I'll always make people code some amount of video because I feel like I learned, I've, I've coded like, I don't know, 3000 infants in my, my career. And I, I think I learned a lot from watching all those videos. The body tracking you mentioned, we sort of already have that for movies with those skin suits, with, which has all, all the dots on them, right? Do you know if that's been done in any development research? I'm sure it has been. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I'm sure people have tried putting little stuff on baby suits and then and then tracking them. Um, uh, obviously, they are tricky in terms of wanting to take things off themselves, but yeah, I, I would imagine someone's tried that. Yeah. You mentioned a few of your ongoing studies. Um, what else are you most excited about? Again, in the in the general field of infant learning, whether it's your own research or just elsewhere. Yeah, sure. Um, what I'm most excited about in my own research and elsewhere. Ooh, that's a big question. Um, so folks in my lab are studying. Um, so, so a lot of ideas related to this sort of can infants think about prosociality or relationships as adopting someone else's rewards into your utility calculations. That's a big thing that we're thinking about. We're thinking about whether or not they think they, how much is this atomizer breakdown? Can they think about asymmetrical social relationships versus, you know, symmetrical ones? When do they learn to expect reciprocity? Um, and is this really a question of whether they do that? Or is it more like a very strong sense that it is what's going on, but you just have to somehow empirically demonstrate it? I think it's a question about whether it's what's going on. It came, I mean, like, so the, so I mentioned the um, imitation work on four and five month olds that I did in grad school. And um, there we found these sort of asymmetrical expectations of approach. So um, uh, if, if the center character had been the imitator, babies expected him to move toward the character he'd imitated, but if he'd been the imitated target, they didn't have really an expectation. Um, the idea being that they only get evidence about sort of adopted utility in the case where he's the, where the central character is the one doing the adoption. Um, but that that said, a lot of social relationships are symmetrical or reciprocal in at least some kind of way. Actually, I was thinking, so I listened to one of your recent episodes with Alan Fisk on, actually, okay, I'm gonna bring, bring this back in in two places here and describing my lab's current research. Okay, so he was talking about this emotion called Kama Muta, he calls it, right, which is like sort of a human connectedness emotion. And so um, that that makes sort of like the, and, and he talked about it actually in the context of caregiving, um, but we were, we've been thinking about the roles of caregiver and, and dependent very differently in the lab, right? Like, so one is um, very effortfully and like, intensely adopting the other one's needs and the other one's basically getting its needs adopted all the time and um, and not doing much in return. Although people argue that babies do do things to try to help their caregivers out. Um, so you could make the prediction and in a, in a recent, in an in-press paper that, that Alexis and I wrote about relationships and emotions that's coming out um, in Nature Review Psychology sometime soon. Uh, we made sort of different predictions about the emotions that a caregiver and a dependent would have toward one another. And I think actually any any parent has had this feeling of like, you know, you care deeply about the baby that you're in charge of, um, but you also sometimes like feel relief if someone else is taking care of them. You don't want to be around them all the time. Whereas like maybe from the baby's perspective, like you just want like your, your caregiver all the time. Like you don't have this sense of, oh, you're annoying me for a minute or like I really need a break from like taking care of your, all of your needs. Um, and so those, it seems like there's some, at least some difference in the emotional experience of those two roles. And I wonder how this might map on 
to Kamamuta at all of like, what, what is this, the feeling of like, like if a person who you think cares about you or is like gone or away or something like that, you might feel lonely, right? Like, um, whereas uh, if a person that you take care of is not around, you might feel some negative emotion that's kind of akin to like alarm or like concern, especially if you're not sure if they're being you know well looked after. But I'm not sure that loneliness is the right description for it. Um, so it seems like the emotion of caring, the emotions related to caring about somebody versus being cared for by someone are a little bit different. In a lot of our relationships, they get merged together because we do both, right? Like if you are in a romantic relationship or if you have a friend, like you you both care about them and also like want them to be there to care about you. Um, and so I think a lot of times when I look very symmetrical emotionally, but maybe in the case of caregiving, you can sort of pull these two different kinds of emotions apart. But um, to talk about the other thing we're doing in the lab that I, I felt was kind of related to this idea was that, um, so we're asking the question of, um, Okay, so there's all this work on helpers and hinderers. You talked about it with Dion. We you've alluded it to it before. Um, uh, so let's say we don't really know what's going on with infants under six months, but you know maybe by a year or eighteen months or whatever, we feel pretty confident that babies um, can identify helpers and seem to respond positively to them. Um, what's that about? Like, there's been this sort of default assumption that it's like identifying the nice guys versus the mean guys. But actually in the lab we've been asking is, is what infants infer, like is their baseline interpretation of an act of helping actually a disposition like that, niceness versus meanness, or is it more like a relationship? Do they think, oh, that the, like the helper is friends with the protagonist and the, the hinderer is not friends with the protagonist. Um, and those two things make different predictions about their expectations for how those actors will behave with new social partners, right? If you think it's a nice guy, then whoever he's interacting with next will be nice to that guy too. If you think that the nice behavior reflected friendship, then maybe doesn't apply to a new social partner that an individual might have. So with another grad student in my lab, Bill Pepe, we've been testing these kinds of things. And um, with first with imitation, asking how, um, you know, imitation might provide evidence of either dispositions or um, relationships, given that infants seem to, to evaluate it positively. Um, but next with uh, actually Ashley Thomas and, and Brandon Wu, we're starting to ask, what about helping behaviors? When you, when infants just see a helping behavior, do they take that as a sign of a relationship versus a disposition? Um, the puzzle, if it turns out, like sorry, the initial evidence suggests their default interpretation might be more a relationship one, more like, oh, those two are friends. So then the puzzle is like, okay, if they think that these pro-social acts are signs of relationships rather than dispositions, um, why do they like the helpers or why do they like the imitators? Right? If they, if they don't necessarily think that this person is just going to be nice to everybody, you know, then what does it matter to them that they're friends with someone else? And I was actually, I was listening to you and Alan talk and he was describing this, like, that, like when you might feel this emotion of Kamamuta and it's like, you can watch videos of veterans, like reuniting with their dogs or their loved ones. And you feel this like intense sense of being moved. Right. And I was thinking about that and I was like, yeah, like, and you might also, if you were gonna, then had a choice of like who to have a conversation with, like that guy who like had this lovely, re yeah, you know, a reunion with his his pet versus someone who you just seen like, I don't know, grocery shopping or something like that. Like you might go with the guy who had this like lovely reunion, right? Like there's something about like, if another person can have positive relationships, maybe they might also have positive relationships with you, right? Like maybe what we're looking for in social partners is not um, niceness in, in an impartial sense, but people who can form intense close relationships and so maybe maybe that is what yeah what the and in, in our social media age there's sort of this window of intimacy that we get through these videos because in order to see something like that loving reunion in real life you would have to be there right so just being there yeah, and seeing true. it 
is maybe tricking you into thinking you're a part of it. I, I heard on a, a recent point. podcast from a psychologist, John Deloney, he, he was likening just the very act of listening to a podcast as like campfire intimacy in this evolutionary sense, because you know, you're driving or doing chores or just sitting around at home doing whatever, but it's kind of like you and me and the listener are all in the same room engaging in this conversation. Maybe the listener is forced in, in this context to be more of a quiet observer, but people like that still exist in real life. And just by being quiet, you can still feel uh, connected in this Kamamuta yeah. sense. That's a really interesting point that maybe one thing that's going on with infants is when they see other people's positive interactions, they they it makes them feel as though they're part of the situation with those people. That's that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah, so lots of directions here to explore in terms of what infant social preferences are really about, which really matters, right? Because it gets at this, um, this question of, do infants have this moral sense where they're just impartially evaluating the goodness and badness of people's actions? Or is there some sort of social motive about the people they're seeking that they and, and exactly how they're identifying that in, in different behaviors that we don't totally understand yet? Um, and then, like, I don't know, the whole field of developmental psychology just fascinates me all the time. So it's hard to pick Likewise. Um, particular other people's work that um, uh, that I'm, I'm super excited about. But um, I think all this stuff on, uh, yeah, let's see. I, I mean, other people are chasing this question of um, the origins of knowledge and innateness. And I'm always, like, super curious to see what comes of that. I'm curious to see how it relates to what we're like seeing from the machine learning field in terms of, you know, it takes so much experience um, to train a deep neural net to understand something, but like what parts of that can you build in as a, some sense of, of, of evolution and what would that look like and what kind oh, of- yeah, here, Here's a very that? tangential fact. You might know Talia Conkle at Harvard who studies vision mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she's doing both like trying to find comparisons between machine learning type vision and vision in the human brain. And one and one classic finding from developmental psychology is that children might over categorize. So if you if you're mm -hmm. just at the cusp of like learning what a dog is, for example, but you've never seen a cow before in your life, you'll be like, look, it's a big spotted dog. And yeah. you have to teach the child, no, no, that's actually a cow. It's its own category. And like they're up, they're updating their mental model of the world. And then Talia yeah. has demonstrated that AI, if it's like midway through training, and if it's sort of a an object categorization type vision AI, uh, it'll make yeah. the same type of overgeneralization errors. And not only that, but she has other research showing that in the way that the different uh, feature spaces cluster in the network, it, it looks kind of similar to how you get specialized areas in the brain for identifying like faces or other sorts of objects or shapes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that work and the combination of that kind of work with all of these bigger data sets on what infants experience is actually like, it's all going to be super cool to see how it shakes out. Um, I think like the, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's all, it's all interesting. This is a, yeah. I miss conferences a little bit because there's so much cool work out there that you get exposed to. Yeah. So to, to your point about um, your ongoing research for these sort of imbalances of expectations and then also how children are evaluating helpers versus hinderers on the basis of relationships. Do you know if there are any of those imbalances that are age dependent? So for example, if you have a sibling or many siblings, are the older siblings going to be seen as more responsible to care for you from the infant's perspective? Or are, is the one 
closer in age to you in this sort of zone of proximal development sense going to be the one that you place the mo most weight on. And then again, uh, the, the social relationship question would be, is it something about the relationship or is it really about the age and the sort of how similar is this person to myself or versus how similar is this person to the role of caregiver? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a good question. Um, okay. So the way, the, the way that I glossed it is like, what kinds of cues would infants use to figure out like degree of relationship or degree of responsibility between individuals? Um, and one example you gave was like older sibling versus closest age sibling. So there is some work on uh, like using size difference in to for to see how infants reason about social interactions, um, and we like one of the big findings is like in the dominance field they expect big guys to win and little guys to get out of the way. Um, so if if two people are like like I mentioned before like sort of bumping into each other and conflicting pathways, um, they expect the smaller one to get out of the way and let the big one go by. Um, and then there is other research that has used size to sort of indicate caregiving roles, but I'm actually not sure if anyone has tested expectations of size and who will be the caregiver, right? So this is a lovely study um, by Susie Johnson um, and colleagues showing that, um, yeah, I wonder, I've been asked recently, well, anyway, um, what the study shows is that uh, if you have um, a big circle and a little circle and they're traveling to get along together um, and the big circle goes all the way up to the top of the hill and the little circle kind of gets stuck halfway up this hill um, and then cries, um, you can show the infant's events where the big circle goes back to kind of get the little circle or doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also measure the attachment style of the infants. And it turns out securely attached infants expect the big circle to go back and get the little circle and infants who aren't securely attached don't. Um, That's and interesting so and sad. <laughs> alarming, right? Yeah. yeah, right. So one of the reasons that we want sort of a, a model of like, what's the what, sort of what's the intuitive theory that infants are using to think about relationships? Like aside from being curious about how that kind of thinking might um, promote imitative behavior that eventually leads to cultural learning, which is how I got into the field of imitation. Now I'm interested in this model of how social relationships work because it seems like there might be individual differences either in the content of the model itself or in the priors that, different, or that are set for different variables in the model that might relate to infant um, social development and, and socio-emotional thriving or, or struggling, um, like this case of attachment. But um, we were talking about this because I was going to say something related to the point that you made, which was about size and expectations of caregiving and that kind of thing, which is, I'm not sure that anyone's ever like, you know, shown that it, it doesn't hold if you make the one that could go back the smaller one and the, the crying one, the larger one, like, right? Like do, do infants have some sense of that bigger individuals are more likely to be caregivers? I don't know, but here's what I will say about the, like, would they expect the most similar one to be helpful? Um, which is that one of the things that I have found encouraging about sort of finding that infants don't just, so the, so one gloss on the imitation stuff that I was talking about before is, you could think that infants reason about similarity as just homophily and that individuals who are similar to one another for any in any way for any reason although that's kind of like the dumbest possible take on homophily and lots of people who are interested in it wouldn't subscribe to that um but in in general just that like similarity might be related to to social liking right in which case we shouldn't have found any asymmetries in any of that work, right? It should have just been like people who are alike and have social partners are preferable or people who are alike will approach one another. But in both cases, that's not what we found. They only positively evaluated the one who was doing the aligning and they only made inferences about that individual's social preference. And so I don't necessarily think that infants 
just think that similarities you don't choose are signs of, of likely affiliation, right? I think it's like the reason why similarity is sometimes a cue to affiliation is when you care about someone, you line up with their goals and that often produces similarities, but it's actually about the alignment underneath. And I like, I like this idea. It feels very optimistic to me because it's like, well, you, anybody can care about anyone else. Right. And maybe we don't yeah. really care that much about similarities that aren't fixable or choosable. It's only in the sense that we care about one another, that it really matters whether or not um, we're lining up and we're alike. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure they, I'm not sure they would go with the close sibling versus the older individual, but also, yeah, there's lots of other cool work on caregiving. Yeah, I'm going to throw out a tangent that I think is related here. I did, I did a podcast a while ago with Franz DeWall, who's a famous primatologist. And we were talking about dominance in chimpanzee troops. And there's this sort of caricature of the dominant alpha male chimp being like the biggest, strongest one that bullies the others. He was talking about how sometimes that's the case. But most of the time, like they'll just gang up on him and take him out of power. And and yeah. chimps can be very violent. So taking someone out of power can mean literally ripping them to shreds. Most right. of the time, the alpha, he says, is the one who's investing most in all social relationships. Like they're they're it's almost like a democratic thing. Like they become alpha because everyone likes them and everyone likes them because they engage in the most grooming behavior and the most sharing of food and all of these things while simultaneously being dominant enough to you know stop any fights like he talks about how the alpha's responsibility the alpha is the one who's usually responsible for breaking up fights among subordinates for example mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah i like that i like the idea that um leaders also have responsibilities it's not something I've, I've looked at myself but um but i know i know ashley thomas has and um uh, yeah, we ha- I have thought a little bit about, uh, there's one other, other student I work with here at UCSD, James Chi, and he has this cool measure of what's called a welfare trade-off ratio, which is something like how much sacrifice will you make for your own rewards, for someone else's rewards. And I kind of wonder, like, if we take that kind of measure and put it in a social network, right? Well, we see that the people who are central are, in fact, the ones who have the sort of highest welfare trade-off ratios toward the most social partners or not. Like, that seems like a cool question that's related to that that kind of idea of people who have power also having like either having it because they care about others or having the responsibility to care about others. Yeah. And I, and I guess even if it's not innate at a very, very early age, infants seem to be able to tap into that uh, thinking about things in those ways. It seems like, I mean, it seems, it really does seem like they have this way of sort of thinking of rational actions, intentionally chosen actions as um, maximizing what you see as your utility. And if the only way to make sense of that is you cared about someone else's rewards, it seems like something that they understand by, by the age of one. That's a great place to close. Thank you very much for your awesome. time, Lindsay. Thanks, Adam. This is really fun.